Blaze On Demand. This is Ben Weingarten of The Blaze Books, and today I'm joined by Jason Riley, Wall Street Journal editorial board member and author most recently of Please Stop Helping Us, which looks like one of the most prescient books of the year in the wake of the ongoing chaos in Ferguson. Jason, thanks for joining us again. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So my first question is, how does it feel that you have become effectively the lone voice in the media arguing against those who would say that we have a systemically racist criminal justice system? Well, that's a flattering uh, suggestion, but I, I, I'm not the lone voice. There are others out there. Um, uh, you know, Larry Elder has been been uh, been saying a lot of the same stuff, and there have been a few others. But you're right; there aren't a lot of us. Um, the the typical um, uh, narrative has taken hold. Um, you take a uh, a situation, um, and we don't have all the facts, but it looks like another case of someone resisting arrest, winding up dead, and uh, and you blow it out of proportion and pretend that that this is the sort of thing driving black homicides in, in America when nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah, and I think that that notion of we don't, we don't have the whole truth, but it seems today that especially when it comes to anything that's basically a non-black person killing a black person today, the narrative seems to trump the truth, uh, especially when we only get a, a glimpse at, at what actually occurred. So, obviously, in the Trayvon Martin case, you saw it. You can go back to the Skip Gates case with President Obama. All sorts of instances where narrative seems to trump truth. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, and and that's because so many um, uh, in the civil rights industry, as I refer to it, and in the uh, black political leadership have a vested interest in that narrative, in in this idea that that the black man is, is so put upon that um uh, uh by by white society and that that is what is driving these outcomes and so you have your 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 sort of professional agitators like like Sharpton and Jesse Jackson getting to work every time they they uh they see something that fits that narrative um they start they start uh, pushing it and driving it and inflaming it and and uh it serves their interest i mean if you go around talking about how white racism is responsible for all these bad black outcomes um you know you get a TV show like Al Sharpton if you go around um talking about uh personal responsibility and 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 black behavior uh you know you don't you don't get a TV show <laughs> well and, and of course in addition to this, you know, I would call them civil rights opportunists, um, you also have those others in the media who enable them. So this obviously yes. immediately kind of brings to mind your your recent appearance on Meet the Press, which has sort of uh, found its way all over the Internet, where you are sort of the lone voice saying, look, we're not talking about the real issue here of black criminality. Right. And you mentioned a statistic about the disproportionate percentage of crime committed by blacks. And after you said that, the the way the camera pans, you see Jane Harmon with kind of a deer-in-the-headlights kind of look, and no one wants to address it, and you're sort of immediately cut off. So my question to you you is, what's your reaction to that? And then also, if you hadn't been cut off and you had the time to really make your point, what would you have said? Well, my my point is that I I don't see how you reduce these tensions uh, going forward uh, between uh, these inner city communities and the police 
um, how you get at uh, this issue of racial profiling and so forth. I don't see how you how you address those issues in an environment where the black crime rate is what it is. I mean, that is what is driving this. Blacks are only 13% of the population, but they're responsible for something like half of all murders in America. Half. I mean, uh, in, in all, all manner of violent crime, all manner of property crime, you see black arrests at two or three times their numbers in the population. And until you, you address that black crime problem, that black criminality, I don't know how you're going to address these other issues that people want to talk about involving you know, tensions between the black community and law enforcement or involving uh, uh, racial profiling and so forth. What is driving those tensions is black crime. What is driving those perceptions of young black men are these crime statistics. And, and, and if you want to change those perceptions, you need to change the behavior uh, driving those perceptions, and that is not a conversation a lot of people, black or white, want to have. They want to talk about incarceration rates, but not crime rates. Um, they want to talk about tensions in the black community, but they don't want to talk about the behavior uh, driving those uh, those tensions. And I think we need to have an uh, an honest conversation about black criminality if, 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 if we want to move forward in addressing um, a, a lot of these bad black outcomes we see in these ghettos. So sort of synthesizing that, looking at it more broadly, it's an issue of people want to talk about symptoms, but they don't want to talk about root causes. And there's also this sort of notion of victimology where we look at all of these external forces, and we don't actually look at the people who are committing the acts themselves. Right, right. And there's also a lack of, of historical perspective here, um, which is that we didn't always have this situation in the black community. If you go back to the 1940s and 50s, the black crime rate was lower than it is today. The black incarceration rate was lower than it is today. And don't tell me, so don't tell me what we see today is due to poverty or racism, because obviously there was more black poverty back in, in, in the 1940s and 50s, and there was certainly more uh, racism in, in America back then. Um, but I will tell you what we had back then that we don't have today. As late as 1960, two-thirds of black children in this country grew up in two-parent homes. Today, 70% do not. That's one big difference between... Uh, uh, the outcomes we had uh, back in the 40s and 50s in the black community and the outcomes we have today. And so, again, that's something we need to talk about, and it's really a, a cultural issue in the black community that needs to be addressed, and that's attitudes towards marriage and attitudes towards uh, child-rearing. And, uh, and, and, again, it's not a conversation a lot of people want to have, and those who do stick their necks out, like a Bill Cosby, you know, get them chopped off. <laughs> right, or... You have a situation like Eric Holder. Obviously, this has been played endlessly, but his his Nation of Cowards speech, I, I believe, in 2009, which really, to my mind, doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. You're saying that we're not having a conversation. People are scared to talk openly and honestly about things. But then if you are to talk openly and honestly, oftentimes you get castigated. Mm -hmm. what, what What's your reaction to that 2009 speech, and then also, 
are you getting support or are you having people attack you for your views? Well, to answer the second question uh, first, um, both. I mean, you know, I get, I, the, the social media uh, response is instant, and um, uh, and and you you get you you hear from all kinds. So so you know you get called some names, but you also get uh, some cheerleaders out there. So um so it's it's a very mixed reaction. Um, to answer the first question, uh, this this to, and and it picks up on a point I was making earlier about uh, folks out there who have a vested interest in driving a certain narrative. And I mentioned how the civil rights industry is trying to stay relevant, so they drive this narrative. But when it comes to black political leaders, they also have a vested interest here. And and that is, in the case of Holder and Obama, um, uh, driving black turnout, uh, uh, continuing their black support, political support. And and so um, in, in Holder and Obama, you have people who think nothing of dividing us um, along racial lines when it, it, it suits their political interest. Uh, Holder's been running around uh, the country uh, claiming that uh, white Republicans are trying to disenfranchise blacks with voter ID laws. Uh, uh, he's been claiming uh, that uh, criticism of the administration is racially driven. And I think he, he has political goals in mind with that. Um, and, and the fact that he's uh, stoking racial resentment uh, is, does not concern him. Uh, he, that, that, that is trumped by his political goals, and, and that is to um, uh, address um, his black constituents and tell them uh, what they want to hear or what he thinks will get them out to the polls uh, to support President Obama. Last, last question for you, bringing this full circle. Do you foresee these sorts of fissures coming to the surface, um, you know, sort of ad infinitum for the next 50 years? Or do you think that ultimately we will start to actually have a conversation and we will get beyond, you know, the looting and the character assassination and, and all of the other things that all of these different episodes bring to the fore? Well, I, I guess I'm an optimist, and I, I uh, so I think things will will get better. It's uh, I'm someone who believes that um, uh, the Sharptons and the and the Jesse Jacksons can only fool people for so long. Uh, I could be wrong about that because they've been doing it for a long time, but I, I am optimistic. Um, you know, I think a, a younger generation of uh, of people will um, will look at their own personal experience and 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 see a. Uh, a, a big gap between what uh, what those folks are telling them and what they see with their own eyes, and, and so um, I am optimistic that we can make some progress. I think the media could play a role here in not continuing to go to that old civil rights guard to speak on behalf of blacks um, constantly the way they do. Um, one of the reasons I wrote the book is because there are different viewpoints in the black community, and I wanted to give voice to some of those different viewpoints. I mean, there are a lot of blacks who don't self-identify as conservatives, but when you talk to them and hear them out, uh, you, you see a lot of conservatism in what they're saying. Uh, uh, so um, so I, I think the media can play a role, a role there, too. But it, it, this is going to be a long process because, again, it's hard to, to start addressing uh, uh, these these bad outcomes. If we won't don't want to have an honest conversation about what's producing them, and 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 uh, people are still reluctant to have that conversation. The, the blacks um, who want to have it uh, get called names, uh, whites who want to have it uh, get called racist, and and so um, we, we we've got to get past that. The name of the book is Please Stop Helping Us. The author is Jason Riley. Jason, thanks so much for joining us again. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
For more on this and other books, you can visit The Blaze Books at www.theblaze.com books and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash theblazebooks and Twitter at theblazebooks. You can follow me on Twitter at bhweingarten.